So, we are carrying on our series uh, called Life Together, which is looking at human relationships uh, with each other and with ourselves at times as well. And we are into a sermon today that we've call, I've called, When Sinners Get Married. Um, so it's going to be a fun one. So let me read Genesis 3, verses 6 to 13, and then verse 16. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the, gar- of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of life, which I, or sorry, the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, "What What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay. Now, before we begin on this topic of sin, let me start with some levity, some comments that people have made about marriage. Because marriage is hard, right? Marriage is difficult, and sin has made all marriages imperfect and difficult. Everybody goes through trouble. And as a result, the world has responded to this, these, the difficulty in marriage, often with humor, but ultimately by just simply either not getting married or getting divorced, often. So let's just see what some uh, of our wisest people have ever said. Groucho Marx said... <laughs> I was married by a judge. I should have asked for a jury. Pretty good. Pretty good. George Carlin. I am is reportedly the shortest sentence in the English language. Could it be that I do is the longest sentence? <laughs> Ogden Nash, who is a poet. To keep your marriage brimming with love in the wedding cup, whenever you're wrong, admit it. Whenever you're right, shut up. Pretty good. And Socrates, the great philosopher. By all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll become happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. <laughs> so, now it's funny, we laugh, and I get it. Marriage is difficult. There's no perfect marriages. They're all very hard. And the Bible has this unique perspective that says, just because they're hard doesn't mean you're incompatible or it's not meant to be. It just means that is what you should expect. Marriage is hard. And when we look at this passage, we see that sin, human sin, infects every aspect of life every aspect, especially marriage, not necessarily more, but the very nature of marriage being an intimate, vulnerable union means it's going to get messy oftentimes. And in this passage, you see very, well, a lot of things, but we're going to try to limit it. I have three points in each point, so it's like a six-point sermon, but two points I'm going to call it to make myself feel better. The first one is, so why is marriage hard? And the second thing is how marriage can actually be great. It gives us both of those things, I think. So first, why is marriage hard? And there's three quick sub-points I'll make. It makes us become defensive. Sin makes us distracted, and it destroys. Okay? So defensive, distracted, destroyed. That's what sin does to marriages. 
And again, remember, we're going to only look at what this passage shows us. We're not going to do a grand sweep of every sin that a marriage is ever going to struggle with. We don't have the time. Or the expertise. I've committed most of those sins, but not all yet. So I, I can't help. But let's start with the first one, defensiveness. So this passage I always find fascinating. And the reason I find it fascinating is there's a question that God asks. So he asks a lot of questions. And it's not because he doesn't know the answer, but he's trying to elicit a certain response. And the fascinating one I find here is when he says, who told you that you were naked? Because he suggests it's a person who told you, but we don't have any information in the text that says the serpent told them. Instead, it seems to be that once they ate, they received this knowledge and they were, there's an awareness that they were naked. It really doesn't matter. You can have that debate in your community groups about where that idea of nakedness comes from. The most important part is this. In a world where there is no clothes, the word naked has no meaning. So there was no clothes, right? No clothes. So when somebody comes to Adam or some idea comes to Adam and Eve and they say, and he says, you're naked, they're introducing something quite foreign because they would have said, what do you mean clothes? Why should I be clothed? My natural state is naked, not just physically, but spiritually in every way, vulnerable, open, and seen, exposed before God. So that question I think is important. And not just that, the, I think the question comes up because it's Adam's response and humanity's response, the word naked, is the best way they're able to describe the feelings of exposure that they feel all of a sudden. Because it's not wrong, necessarily, that they feel naked. Let me explain what I mean. The very fact that they have sinned before God indicates that they are now deserving, they're, they're, they're rebels, they're rebels, they're now under the judgment of God, they're criminals. And so, the right response of a criminal before a holy judge is wanting to cover up some sort of, some sort of dealing with this uncomfortable exposure. I've now, I'm no longer fit to stand before you. Now, the right response would have been repentance. But instead, what happens is they cover it. And this is the constant effort of sin. It wants to cover itself up. It wants to blame constantly and redirect attention away from it. And Adam does this, obviously, very quickly. But you see how it impacts human relationships most intimately right away, this defensiveness. Because what he does is this. He knows he's no longer fit. He knows he's been seen. Think about when you're walking on a street. Hopefully this hasn't happened to you, but if you're walking on a street and you hear a gunshot and then hear a puff of smoke behind you, you immediately run for cover, right? Because you don't know who's shooting at you, but what you do know is they see you and you don't see them. The very feeling of being exposed and seen is terrifying. And so then human heart wants to hide. Adam does it immediately. In fact, it's tragic that he takes these good things in the garden that were meant to bless him and to help nourish his relationship with God, and he now uses them to hide behind the trees and everything. So he wants to hide, and because he knows, and because we know we're not right with God, we automatically think, I can't be vulnerable before God, and I certainly can't be vulnerable for other people. And so life becomes masquerading, always trying to hide behind something. Even with our spouses, this most intimate relationship, you want to... Listen, your spouses don't know everything about you. They don't. I don't care how wonderful you think your spouse is, you don't know everything about them. And that's because they're human. And this intimacy is, of, of marriage is, is terrifying for us. Because in a marriage... See, you may think... You may have an opinion of Carl, right? Good or bad. But I'll tell you who has the right opinion of me, or closer to it, my wife. 
people may say, oh, you're so smart, you're so clever, you're such a jerk. Right? They say, whatever. My wife knows if I'm smart, clever, or a jerk. She knows it. And the very fact that this intimate relationship means that I am seen more deeply by my wife than I am by anyone else in this room means I'm vulnerable. And there's a great power that's given to spouses because, because she knows me better than anyone. If you all were to say, Carl, you're a terrible preacher, but my wife said you're a good one, you know what I come out here thinking? I'm a good preacher. Because she knows me. She has the power to build me up or tear me down. And the reason I still will hide from my wife at times, and vice versa, is not because I don't love her, but because humans abuse this power all the time. The very power that means I can walk on water when she says I'm wonderful is the same power she can use and sin will ask us to use with our spouses that will tear them down. Because it's the, same, it's the opposite. If you all say I'm a great preacher and my wife says you're a terrible one, I'm sorry, your opinions don't matter to me compared to hers. And this is the power and that intimacy that comes with marriage. And it is different than friendship. We'll talk about friendship and Thanksgiving. Just because I don't want to talk about the three-letter word at Thanksgiving, I feel that would be, I don't know, something. Um, <laughs> so we'll do friendship next week. But it's even more intimate than friendship because in friendship, some things you don't share with friends, at very least sexually. But in marriage, everything is laid open. And so there's this incredible power, but we've used it wrong right? And sin uses us to abuse one another at times. And you see it in marriages where we don't use that power to build one another up. Instead, we just tear them down and tear them down. And this is the defensiveness. We don't want to be vulnerable, so we lie. We cover up. So we defend instead of being open. But then there's this aspect that we also see here of distraction. So I've mentioned it. Man hides behind things right away. And man uses... Man, I'm using man as the generic for humanity hides behind natural things. This is different than when God clothes them. God clothes them when they go out of their garden, but that's for protection from the elements. <clears throat> we clothe ourselves to hide ourselves from Him. In fact, sin loves to blame. It wants to blame, that's going to sound like a rhyme, uh, it wants to deflect shame by blaming. Um, and it's true. Adam, of course, tragically does it right away. The woman who you gave me, <laughs> she's the one who did it. So he's blaming God and Eve. And then Eve, of course, blames the serpent. We just love to blame because sin hides itself. Sin is a great disguiser. It'll always be underneath. It will never very rarely comes to you in the way it intends, the way it is, barefaced. It always comes with this hidden, um, hidden agenda. And this is why we spend most of our lives as married people in this cycle of Things are good, things are good, things are good. Trouble comes, or I guess low, trouble comes. And then you get into a fight, you spend a couple days, you forget that you're angry with each other maybe, and then things are normal for a while. And it keeps happening. And the reason is, I'll use an, just an example. If, if a man comes home or a woman comes home from work, and they've had a bad day at work, and then they walk into their home, and they're confronted with something that will just aggravate them further. It could be a messy house, it could be screaming kids, whatever it is. Now, they become short with their spouse and with their family. And of course, the spouse who's upset says, what are you doing? I'm the one who's been home all day doing it. What are you getting mad at me for? And now a fight happens, right? Now, they end up arguing about this attitude and they think they've resolved something, but really all they've done is dealt with the symptom and not the root problem, that there's a greater sin at the core that is causing them to treat the person they love terribly. Have you ever wondered why you treat your spouse worse than you treat strangers? I see it in my kids. They're far more helpful here at church than they are at home. 
Far more. My kids will volunteer for everything here. They'll do everything. Ask them at home to clean their room. It's like, Dad, it's the worst. I'm so busy. Um, and that's just, the, I understand. It's the nature of the sin. And we, because we, ch- let me use an example. Um, sin is like, a, it's like a, the way it hides itself, it kind of acts like a high interest credit card. <laughs> you end up paying the interest but never get to the principal. And because sin is so good at hiding its trueness, its reality behind these symptoms of, of short temper or messiness or frustration, you're always paying the interest. You're always dealing with these things, but you never get to the heart of the issue. And that's what sin wants. It doesn't want to get to the heart of these things, ever, if it can. And then what ends up happening is couples start to think they're really doing well or poorly because they deal with the symptoms really well or poorly. But it's actually a distraction. Let me give you a more pertinent example. Imagine you have a bridge, and the bridge looks really good, but an expert, if they got close, could tell that there's hairline fractures in it. Now, it looks really good. The only way to know the integrity of that bridge is when the 40-ton truck, I've checked, that's apparently the heaviest truck you're allowed to have on the road. Um, The 40-ton truck drives across it, and then all of a sudden, the strain and the imperfections in the bridge start to show. The cracks get bigger, and you begin to see it. But make no mistake, that truck did not cause any of the fractures. It just revealed them. And so, the frustration with your kids, the struggles at home, the anger at work, whatever things they may be, those are symptoms of cracks that are deeper. And if we keep only treating the 40-ton truck, we're never going to fix the bridge. And so, but sin wants you to focus on the truck, so it hides itself. Let me move on. We'll talk about how to help these things in a minute. Next one, destroys. This one is fascinating too. So verse 16, the one we read, it's the curse God gives, pronounces this curse on the serpent and on humanity for, for sin. And when he does it, he says two things. One we're going to cover in a couple weeks, so I won't get into all of it. But the first thing he says is there's childbirth. It's interesting. He doesn't say that there's going to now be pain in childbirth, but he's going to increase the pain. So was there always going to be pain in childbirth? And no comment. Discuss amongst yourselves. But... So we'll talk about that because the problem, the the challenge of that curse is it makes the very mandate you're made for, which is to fill the earth, hard. So sin is going to make your calling more difficult. We'll cover that in a couple weeks. The the important one for this sermon is that second part that says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now it's a very debated passage. Let me try to summarize it as best I can. Remember last week we said that the foundational roles for each gender, the male and the female in the marriages, the man's role is to present his family as radiant to God. That's his job. And the wife's job is to aid the husband in this good pursuit. And when he goes off the rails, she's to help. And when he's doing well, she's to affirm. And he is to use everything he can, all the power and authority, to love her and to love his family and to make them holy. Now, if we know that, what is going on here is mind-blowing a little. So, First, when it says that the woman's desire will be for her husband, it's the word chuka, which you don't need to know the Hebrew, but it's only used three times, this particular word for desire, only three times the entire Bible. Twice in Genesis, once in the Song of Songs. Now, here's a note on interpretation if you're budding scholars. If you're ever interpreting what a word means in part of the Bible, the first thing you do is you ask, how does the same author use the word? Because an author may use a word differently than another author. For instance, If Mr. Trudeau was to speak about marriage, he would have a very different idea of it as me. And yet, we'd have the same word, marriage. So to understand what I'm saying by marriage, you'd have to listen to me first, and then Trudeau. 
And that's just an example. You pick any non-Christian. So when we look at this, what is the Genesis author? How does he use this term? Okay? And it's used in the very next chapter and almost in the exact same context. So let's look at it. It's in chapter 4, verse 7, speaking to Cain. God says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. See that? Desire and rule in the same context, in the very next chapter. For Cain, what is being said is this. Cain, sin is there, and it's this ravenous animal waiting to conquer you. It's wanting to override what you know to be better and to dominate you. It's contrary to you. It's for you is actually what the Hebrew says. The, the sin is for you. So when we turn, if that's the same, if that's what is being said in this passage about Eve, and this, and we're going to get to the men too, so don't think Eve like I'm picking on women. Um, then what it's saying is, Eve, you are meant to be this helper, an equal in dignity and value in the marriage, and val- no, no issue there. However, sin is going to make you want to turn that off on its head. You are going to want to dominate your husband now as a result, because sin is going to make you insecure, and you're going to use your position as helper to usurp his role rather than to help him. Now, it just, now when you turn to what it says about the man, it's, again, the same word for rule is used in Cain's. Cain is told, Cain, you have to dominate the sin. Do not let it have you. So, we look back at the man, God says, because you're going to do this, now note, the man is now going to use the authority he has not to love you, but sin is going to make him want to dominate you. He's going to want to hold you back. He's going to want to enslave you. He's going to want to do everything because he's as insecure as you are. And because the man is insecure, he is going to do everything to retain his authority because he doesn't know how to exercise it rightly anymore. And because you are insecure, you don't know how to love as you should have, and you're going to use it wrongly. And this is going to infect human relationships with men and women forever. And does it not affect human relationships forever? Just look at history. It's been a constant issue. And this is what, this, this issue is going to happen all through our marriages. And if you don't see it happening in yours, well done. But it does. And you see it even in very good marriages. Because even in good marriages, you see situations where, um, let's again an example. Um, I'll use an example that's easy for me because I'm accused of this often and I'm being as vulnerable as I can. I'm a man who loves certain things but hates certain things. I hate doing certain things. Nobody likes to do housework. The men, I don't like doing housework. I just don't like it. And as a result, I will find, even without thinking about it, ways to avoid it. I don't mean to all the time. It's Paul's Romans 7. I do what I do not wish to do. I want to be helpful. I want to be a better husband. But I don't do it. I'm just prone to that. Now, when I'm called out on that by my azer, as she should, my tendency is to now use the authority I have and say, I first men get loud, right? You get angry. And you do everything you can to deflect and say, damn it, I work all day. Right? And you deflect. And this is even in the best of marriages you see that. And it's the same thing would turn it back on the woman. When the woman feels unappreciated, unloved, is it not common, and as a guy who counsels people often, I hear this, isn't it common that the woman will use what she can to get a stab in at the husband, which is, you're not a man, you're not even behaving like a man, you're not honoring the Bible and God, and you start to cut down his authority. And in the best of marriages, this happens. It is, don't be ashamed, well, be ashamed a little, but understand it's natural, sadly, in our human nature. Um, And let me say this as well. When I say that sin destroys, what I mean is sin is always trying to undo God's good creation. 
It's always trying to return things back to the formlessness and void before he ordered it. And if the order he has put in for marriage is that there's these relationships that are perfectly functioning, that we all function the way we're designed to function in a marriage, and we support one another, and so on, then sin is saying, no, I'm going to break it. I'm going to turn it over. I'm going to turn on its head so the man, instead of loving, dominates. And I'm going to turn, instead of the woman loving her husband and helping, she's going to cut him down and undermine him. And it's always undoing God's creation. Always. That's what sin continually does. Now, if that's some of the negative parts, what sin, how, why sin can be so hard, how do we actually get it right? How can, sin, how can marriage um, be great? So, first it's this. Um, I remember Stanley, Stanley Hauerwas, if you know how Stanley Hauerwas is a scholar, and he once said, the difficulty in marriage is learning to love the stranger you're married to. And what he means is, every day you're different. Every one of us has changed as we've been married. You're not the same person. I mean, I sometimes hear these terrible rom-coms and stories on TV where they justify divorce by saying, she's not the woman I married. Yeah, of course not. And you're not the same man, so stop it. But there's this assumption that, oh, no, it should always be the same. No, it's not. The moment you say, I'm an individual only for myself, and I'm binding myself to another where I'm now accountable to them, you're going to change. When you have children, your priorities and attitudes should change, selfish people. So when you say, oh, I, we're different now, we're incompatible, boy, that is, I know the world sells it, but it's a naive response to marriage. So the first thing that we have to look at is three things biblically that help us to make our marriages great. First one is um, perspective expectations, the biblical expectations. And this is, there's nothing, I don't know if there's anything more, this will kind of undergird all of the ones I'm going to talk about. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says these famous lines, right? Um, the saying, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that, Jesus, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, Paul saw, thought of himself as the greatest sinner in the world. He wasn't depressed, he's not a masochist, he's not, a, he's not just feeling down on himself. Paul, through his time and experience of knowing God and knowing people, thought that consistently his heart is more selfish, more rebellious, more self-exalting than anybody else's heart. And I think if you're a Christian, the longer you're a Christian, you resonate with that. That you may even look at murderers and say, yeah, I know that's not my sin, but my sin is constant, constant, unrelenting. And that doesn't make you dour and sad. It's quite the opposite. Knowing God and knowing who we are in the face of God as sinners actually provides us with the proper ex expectations for marriage. Because marriage is the union of two people who are at war within themselves. So it's not surprising that they would have war when they're brought together. And if you don't come away thinking that you are the chief of sinners who has married a chief of sinners, then you're in for a world of hurt. And here, let me explain why. If you don't think there's two equal and terribly depraved sinners in your marriage, then you think one of these three things. One, you may think there's only one of you who's a sinner. And that's problematic, because if you think the other person's a sinner, you're going to become a tyrant and a jerk, and you're going to think, this person is horrible. Clearly they're not meant for me, because look at them. I'm great, they're not, so I'm going to cut this short and find somebody who is, just like me, a perfect person. So you become a tyrant in your marriage. If you think you're the sinner and the other person's a saint, you're just as problematic because you're never going to hold them to account. You're going to be prone to manipulation and depression. And every time something goes wrong, they're going to be, potentially, if, they're not, if there are sinners, they're going to be using it because they know how they can stick it to you. You see, 
Spouses know exactly where to stick it to us, don't they? Because they know where it hurts. They know our vulnerabilities. If you're ever in the room with people who are getting divorced, they say the nastiest things. And you know why? They know exactly where it hurts. They know exactly where to do it. And if you think you're a sinner, or you're a sinner and they're not, you're going to be a subject to this. You're going to be a mess. And if you, even worse of all, think none of you are sinners, most people, when they're young, think this, that I'm perfect and I'm going to marry somebody who's perfect. That's a mess too, because, for a lot of reasons. But the primary reason is, eventually, there's going to be a real problem, real trial in the marriage, a real struggle. And you're going to interpret that struggle as incompatibility. You're going to say, I made the wrong, I made the wrong choice. I've got to get out. So all of the, any perspective except for the Pauline or the biblical perspective is a wrong one. We need to acknowledge first that our expectations are that we are sinners and so is the person we're married to. That is foundational. The second thing, and it builds on that, is maturity. So here's a principle, and I know it's a difficult one to come to terms with, but the longer you're a Christian, it's simply the way it is. God permits evil. Not the author of evil, but he permits it. His permissive will allows evil to happen. But he also says, I will allow evil to happen, but I will not allow evil to accomplish its purposes. I will always turn evil towards accomplishing my plans. Right? And this is entirely what he says, in, of course, in Romans 8, he says this directly. But this is, let me just read what Paul, a guy named Paul Tripp, pastor and writer, says. He says this, God is using the difficulties of the here and now to transform you. That is, to rescue you from you. And because he loves you, he will willingly interrupt or compromise your momentary happiness in order to accomplish one more step in the process of rescue and transformation, which he is unshakably committed to. Grief is not a dark tunnel that fate has sent your way. It is a wise tool in the hands of a loving God who, never, who knows how deep your need is and wants to give you gifts of grace that will last forever. And so mature believers know that they're a sinner and know that when trials come, it's not because they have sinned and because they're bad people, but because there is sin in us and God is using it for our glory. Using it for his glory, actually, and for our transformation. Correction. Correction. And mature Christians are able then, they're still going to have trouble in your marriage. You're going to, it's just, it's marriage. But you endure them with greater peace and greater faith. Peace because you know they're going to come. You're not surprised, you're not caught off guard by the stranger you're living with. You know it's going to happen. But also faith because you know that it's been brought into your life to make you radiant and the other person radiant. So maturity is important. And the last one, maybe not the most important, but one that ties this together is this idea of covenant. So, this is maybe uh, close to the bone, but I think we all need to hear this. Your spouse's sin is almost never personal against you. Sometimes it is. But almost, most of the time, in my experience, the sin between couple, couples is not meant to hammer the other person. What you are witnessing, like it or not, is you are experiencing the weakness and failure of that person in their conflict against sin. And as a result, you get the blowback. When they have a bad day at work and don't know how to handle that, and they come home screaming or just being curt with you, listen, understand, sin is crouching at the door, and it's coming out, and you're getting splashed by it because you're that close to them, right? Marriage is that close. You're going to feel it. But usually, if you get down to the core, the bridge, rather than the truck, you'll realize they're not actually mad at you. They don't know how to handle the frustration at work. And these sorts of things are important for us. And this is why. Um, because sin causes us to turn moments of ministry into moments of anger. 
Because those moments when sin appears in our marriages is actually as hard as it is to see, and we'll talk about this in one second. Very difficult. But it's actually an opportunity for ministry. I'll use my last quote from Paul Tripp. When your ears hear and your eyes see the sin, weakness, or failure of your husband or wife, it is never an accident. It is always grace. God loves your spouse, and he is committed to transforming him or her by his grace, and he has chosen you to be one of his regular tools of change. So he will cause you to see, hear, and experience your spouse's need for change so that you can be an agent of his rescue. If marriage is what we said last week, that you are there to make each other radiant, when sin pops up, the tendency is to say, to heck with this guy. I'm going to get out of the, I'm going to go to Starbucks and be alone. Is that just me? No. But we want to escape. You want to run from it because you don't want to deal with it because it's ugly, it's messy, it's hard, it's going to be a conversation, it's going to be a debate. You don't want to. But that instinct in you is your sin responding to their sin. The actual response when couples are committed, as God is, to our reclamation and our sanctification, is we are to say, okay, I know this person's being a jerk, but I know, like in Romans 7, when Paul says, what I desire to do is, is good, but I can't seem to do it. We then need to see, we all, we all think that about ourselves, right? When we sin, we say, well, I don't mean to. But when your spouse does it, you say, you're a jerk. You meant to do that. But what we need to learn how to do is to, say to our, think to our, about our spouses and say, that's not her, that's not him. They want to be good, but they're losing at the moment. And my job is to help them. Both of us, men and women, how do I help them master this sin? How do I help them overcome it and to draw attention to it? Now, that's going to be difficult. It's going to be messy. But if anyone has ever walked with an addict from addiction to sobriety, you'll know that's messy because you have to break and kill the addiction because it won't come out naturally. It has to be dragged out. And this is the covenant. This is why you need to know, and you and I need to know, that we are in covenant. We're bound, and that's what we're called to do to deal with each other's sin, to make each other radiant. It doesn't happen just by accident. It comes by addressing difficult things and having difficult conversations sometimes. And this is why the Bible refers to it as a partnership. Marriage is a partnership. Um, let me, how do you do this then? Well, this is where I'll really close. How do you become a person who doesn't run from or excuse sin in yourself or in the other person, but instead turns and tries to address it in a healthy way? One more thing. David Harvey is a pastor. He's a pastor, actually. He's a writer. I think he's actually a counselor. And um, speaking about that 1 Timothy passage that Paul says about being the chief of sinners, he says this, With the passing of each day, two things grew larger for Paul, his sinfulness in light of the holiness of God and God's mercy in the face of his sin. Knowing both God and himself accurately was not at all discouraging or depressing. Rather, it deepened his gratitude for the vastness of God's mercy in redeeming him and the patience of Christ in continuing to love and identify with him in his daily struggle against sin. And so, for you and I, the the only remedy, there's no five steps to being a better husband. One very simple step. Stare at the gospel. Understand how much you have been forgiven. When you begin to see how much grace it takes for God to deal with you, how patient he is and he doesn't throw you out and get frustrated. When you begin to see the holiness of God, you begin to see your own depravity, your own sin. If you're not so sure that you are the problem in your marriage, you haven't understood the gospel. You're all the problems of your marriages. You're all sinners. Listen, I'm not in any way excusing abuse. I'm not saying one person isn't abusive while the other is laboring for God. I'm not suggesting that. But it begins by looking at God and saying, 
my goodness, I can endure far more if I remembered how much Christ endured for me. He is so committed to making me holy that he doesn't let anything discourage him, even the loss of his own life. And yet I'm going to run because she doesn't want to have intimate moments at the same schedule as me? Or he doesn't make enough money or she doesn't make enough money? Like, come on. That's not the way the Christians should be responding. But I do know that's how we do it. God knows. I'll read this as I won't say it right probably. God knows you are weak, easily frustrated and selfish, but he doesn't run. He digs in and he gives some, some of us a spouse to help us master these things. He digs into it. And so we're called to be committed to knowing God, to knowing our own sin, so that we can grow in our patience and commitment to our spouses, so that we can do, as I've already said, committed to the sanctification of making this other person that you're bound to holy. It's hard, not easy. It's a constant work. And you'll know from the garden image, when you have a garden, you can't just pull weeds at the start of the marriage. You can't go to Christian counseling and say, marriage is perfect. You can't go at the end. Pulling weeds in a garden is every single day. Constantly pulling weeds out of your own eye. That's mixing metaphors. Or out of hers or his. And it's constant. And the only way to do it is to stare at the gospel, to see how much God is committed to you. Let's pray.